Let me invite you now to open your Bibles in the book of the prophet Micah, chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, verses, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. Micah 6, 1 through 8. Micah 6, 1 through 8, this is the word of God. To us, receive it with faith and with, with faith and with love. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to, to Gilgal, that you might know, you may know, the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and by myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves, a, real, a, real, a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? and to walk humbly with your God. Charles J. O'Byrne was secretary to New York Governor David A. Patterson, the highest unelected position in the entire state. As you would expect from, some, from a secretary to the governor of New York, he obviously had a lot of responsibility, but he managed to get the job done. However, in October of 2008, O'Byrne was forced to step down after it became public that he had not paid his taxes from 2001 until 2006. I know, even with such a prestigious position and background, this isn't too shocking, isn't it? Back where I came from, we call news of corrupt politician last Tuesday. The surprise came from his invention of an entire unheard of mental illness to explain why he did what he did. According to his lawyer, poor Mrs. Mr. O'Byrne couldn't help that he had not filed taxes for five years because he was the victim of a mental illness called non-filer syndrome. 
those afflicted with the debilitating illness are supposedly, quote, high-functioning people who otherwise can complete all of the ordinary tasks in their lives. But there is something they cannot do, and many times that causes them not to be able to file their tax returns. Mr. O'Byrne managed to attend law school, to rise to a top position in New York's government. Still, an afternoon at H&R Block was just not within his capability. While you might not appeal to an imaginary mental disorder diagnostic to justify your failings, I believe we are all too familiar with Mr. O'Byrne's plight. My dog ate my homework. He started, not me. This is not what it looks like. Whenever we are confronted with our mistakes and misdeeds, our sinful hearts pump all kinds of excuses into our mouths. Now, when it comes to our walk before our Lord, is it possible, like Mr. O'Byrne, to plead ignorance when we fail to obey our God? After all, are we expected to memorize every single law that there is in the Bible? Think about this for a second. You had no choice in being born a sinner, but you are expected not to act like one. Is it possible to stand before the Lord and claim, well, you see, I have this non-law of God follower syndrome. Well, in our text this morning, this is precisely what happened. In this text that we just read, God brings up a lawsuit against his people, and the response looked much like Mr. O'Burns. In the courtroom of Micah 6, the consequences are way more relevant than tax evasion. In this text, we will see what God expects of us, how we cannot excuse our way, our way out of condemnation, and how can we hope that the defendant will be acquitted. In summary, we will learn from this text from God himself that if we are in Christ, we receive from God everything he expects of us. Again, I'll repeat this because this is a life-changing truth. In Christ, we receive from God everything He expects of us. We will see this in three points. First, to be acquitted before God, we must remember His grace. Again, first thing we see in this text, to be acquitted before God, we must remember His grace. The somewhat good king of Judah, Hezekiah, is about to die. In his place is coming his son, Manasseh, another one of those nasty ones who led the people into religious idolatry and social disarray. It is in this context that we find old Micah at the end of his days in chapter 6. He is there after a whole life of ministry to that people, 
seeing them, who had earlier rallied around the religious reforms of Hezekiah, suddenly returned to their former and unjust and ungodly ways. In this context, through the pen of Micah, we find God seeing his people once again abandon him, abandoning him after all he had done for them. He is there. He's watching them turning their backs to him, but he is not silent. It is time to do something. It is time to confront these, these stiff-necked people. It is time to settle this in court. All rise, says prophet Micah in verse 1. All rise, for the Lord is in the courtroom, and he has a case to present against his people. The divine prosecutor will speak. In a grand geological jury of mountains, hills, and the very rocks that keep this earth in its place will be his witness. Why choose mountains as witness? witnesses? Well, they have been there from the beginning. Metaphorically, these mountains have seen and heard all the things of old. They are enrolled as witnesses because, again, they have listened to the pleas of the prophets being again and again overcome by the cries of the animals being presented as sacrifices to idols. They know. These mountains have seen stuff. In verse 3, then, God begins to present his case. Oh, my people, he says, what was it that I did to you? What did I do that became such a burden to you? How, answer me, how have I wearied you? Are you familiar? Can you imagine this feeling? Maybe you, like me, have close relatives or friends who have left the faith. And sometimes you catch yourself thinking, what did I say that was not enough? What did I do that was not enough? Where have I failed? This is what God is asking of his people. This also makes me think of the prodigal son's father in Luke 15. Mulling these questions in his mind for all those years while his younger son was gone. What have I done that made you so tired of me? In which way have I specifically burdened you to the point of you deciding to leave as if I was dead to you? Where have I failed? God, of course, has never done anything wrong for his people, nor failed them in any way. We know that. His questions are rhetorical. And his plea for them to answer at the end of verse 3 is met with silence. They cannot answer that. So he proceeds with his case. What have I done? Well, verse 4. Was it not enough of was it not out of enough love that I rescued from slavery in Egypt? I heard your cry, acted with a mighty hand to redeem you. Was this not enough proof of my care for you? 
Did you lack leadership or guidance after I gave you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam? They were my prophets, my priests, my presence before you. You were never alone. Did I not protect you enough? When Balak, king of Moab, hired Balaam to prophesy against you, did I not confuse his mouth to pronounce only blessings instead of curses? Have you forgotten what happened between Shittim and Gilgal? Well, I have. When you were in Shittim, outside of Canaan, and then I parted the waters of the Jordan River for you to enter the land of the promise with dry feet until the camp of Gilgal. Have you forgotten that? Was God's covenant fidelity to bring you into a land of abundance and rest a burden over your shoulders? God's people are in the dock because they forgot what God had done for them. And now I must ask you, have you? If the Susquehanna River or the Pocono Mountains could testify in court, what would they say about your walk before our Lord? Will they say you always live as someone who remembers that a gracious God has given you everything you need for this life and the next? Will they say your daily life is characterized by a love for God shown in acts of mercy for others who did not do anything to deserve it? Or will they say you are quick to accuse and oppress others because you forget constantly that all the sins in your past have been forgiven and forgotten by the righteous judge. To be acquitted before God, I said in the beginning, we must remember God's grace in our favor. Paul asked the church in Ephesus to remember that formerly you were separate from Christ, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Today, this is God's call for you through the prophet Micah. To live like you remember what God has done and said for you. Well, you might be saying to yourself, I do. I do remember. I'm here, am I not? I'm doing what I'm supposed to do on a Sunday morning, am I not? Am I not doing everything right? I don't know, are you? Let us see how the people respond to God's accusation and see if it tells us anything about how we are doing. This is our second point this morning. To be acquitted before God, we must cease defending ourselves. Again, to be acquitted, we must cease defending ourselves. In verses 6 and 7, Micah presents the, people, presents the people's response to God's accusations. 
He charged them, God charged them, with being weary of him, treating him with contempt, and leaving as if he were not their covenantal loving Lord and shepherd. What will they say to that? Verse 6, Look, God, they say, we bow humble and low, we bow low and humble ourselves when we enter your glorious and powerful presence. Is that not enough? I don't know, should we bow more then? Is, the, is what they're saying. The defendant's strategy, strategy is to point out all the good things they have done to prove the accusations they received are wrong. Does God want more burnt offerings? Would he, please, would he be pleased with more sacrifices, perhaps a thousand rams? Would that be enough? How about thousands of ointment oil containers? Are animals not enough anymore? Should now we sacrifice our own sons and daughters then? In some, are we not obedient, full of reference, and generous in giving to God? Are we not the only perfect church? What else do you want, God? Is what they're saying. You see, at a first read, they're going through all the proper motions, aren't they? Checking all the boxes you usually associate with the Old Testament. It was God himself who taught them to approach him with sacrifices. He told them to do it, and they did it. And now it seems, well, it seems that that's not enough. And maybe you start even seeing yourself in their shoes with some sympathy. Well, they are doing everything just fine, just like I do. I have been, I have been in this church many years, just as the pavement of County Line Road. I have been so faithful to God all these years that I remember the old red door and the old brick wall that used to be where now we have the entrance hall. I have done all that you asked of me, God. Isn't that enough? Is it? You see, the Old Testament sacrificial system was not a way to bribe God. Nor was it a question of measuring your loyalty to God against the scale. The more sacrifices, the more love. No. These sacrifices were designed to be an outward sign of the inner attitude of a person's broken and contrite heart. David tells us that in Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God you will not despise. This is not to say the sacrifices were useless, no. Just like your, your faithfulness in coming to church after all these years, reading your Bible, hearing sermons, praying for the sick, serving in sermon Bible camp are not useless. Unless, unless they are not paired with a broken and contrite heart. So I must ask you, after you serve in whatever capacity you might do in this church, 
Do you feel God owes you something in return? Or when you suffer and you lose something dear, do you present God with a receipt of all the good stuff you have done for Him as proof of your fidelity? Look, I have done all these beautiful things. Now give me what I'm owed. In verse 3 of Micah 7, right after our text, still in the same context, Micah describes the people of Judah like this. Their hands are one what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. These people are the people who were making all the right sacrifices in the temple. Their sacrifices were an attempt to display outwardly what they lacked inwardly. Their hands were doing evil very well. Thank you very much. But they th thought enough sacrifices would be enough to hide their sins. God did not want more sacrifices from these kind of people. Just like he doesn't want more sacrifices from us. He wanted their hearts. He wants our hearts. The Apostle Paul's famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, answers these questions of verses 6 and 7 in this way. If you give away all you have, and if you deliver up your body to be burned, but you have not love, you will gain nothing. We read early what Jesus said about this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Yes, God does require true worship that glorifies His name, yes. But also, yes, He's not impressed with mere ritual observance. Self-righteous attempts to buy His favor with a massive quantity of gifts. What else did Jesus say in the passage that we just mentioned? For I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Micah is telling that very same thing right now. We must stop self-righteously defending ourselves to be acquitted in God's courtroom. How do we do that then, you might ask? How can we show mercy? How can we please God? What does He want from me? This will lead us into our final point. To be acquitted, you must do what He gives you to do. Again, to be acquitted before God, we must do what He gives us to do. Micah concludes the case by answering the people. God told you already what is good, he says in verse 8. You see, there's no mystical, extraordinary, hidden sacrifice that you must, must perform. There's no secret chord to play in the organ that will finally please the Lord. God has already communicated what He requires. You should have known that already. 
Micah then could have listed the 613 commandments in the Pentateuch and then add to that several hundred, or hundred more principles just from the book of Proverbs. Then today we would have to add the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels, the exhortations of Paul, Peter, and John, and compile this massive list of everything that God requires of us. But that's not what he does. God wants from man, says verse 8. That is, God wants from the creatures he created on this earth three basic things. We must do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. That is all. First, we are to do justice. Justice here describes the right social relationships between people based on, on God's view of what is appropriate. We must demonstrate mutual respect and care for one another within our communities. Second, we are to love kindness. The word translated here as kindness is used in the Old Testament to refer to God's covenantal steadfast love for his people. Applied to us humans, the command is for us to remain steadfastly loyal to God in a way that overflows into having mercy for all. This loving kindness that we are supposed to love is the glue that keeps us, the covenant family, united to each other and united to Him. Third, we are to walk humbly before God. We must reject any presumptuous attitude of doing things our own way. Such a walk with God is humble because it puts our will in a secondary position compared to God's designs for us. Thy will be done, says he who walks humbly before his God. In summary, this kind of wise life focuses first on our responsibilities to God and to others, rather than worrying about selfish personal concerns. And of course, no one put this better than Jesus himself. We shall love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and we shall love our neighbor as ourselves, is what Micah is saying to us, which is not a new command. You knew that already, O oh man. God's requirements are more comprehensive and more penetrating than any casual deed of bringing an animal to sacrifice at the temple. His loving covenantal relationship with us affects us, affects every relationship we have. It brings the main things into focus and consequently ignores the petty attitudes of trying to please God by bribery through more and more and more sacrifice. And do you know what the sad, sad truth of all of this is? You wanted to know what God expected of you so you don't have to plead ignorance? The unfortunate truth about what God expects of you is that, to quote a famous courtroom scene, you can handle it. <laughs>
you can handle the truth. Micah presents three simple things to do that will please God. But you failed at those three simple things constantly. Can you say you seek justice for the poor and the oppressed in our neighborhood? Or do you think that being in the land of opportunity, the rule is every man for himself? Do you love the people of God sacrificially, like He loved you, putting the interests, interests of others before yours? Or do you think the church has to keep you happy enough so she can have the privilege of having you as its prized member? Do you walk humbly before God, recognizing that His ways are not our ways, and He does not serve you, but you serve Him? Or, after all these years of service, you expect Him to treat you with whatever you think it's best for you? You don't keep these three simple commandments of verse 8. I know that. God knows that. And this is why He sent His own Son in the fullness of time. Because we cannot handle the requirements of God, He gave us someone who would do it. Let us go back to our entire text so you can see it. Verse 4, Jesus is our Redeemer. He's the one who rescued us from our slavery to sin, and He's our great King, Prophet, and Priest, the Head of the Church. He is Emmanuel, God with us, so we can never complain we are alone. Verse 5, He is the revelation of God's glory to us, speaking blessings to us and thwarting our enemies' plans. He is the way and the door to the eternal land of abundance and rest, taking us from the earthly Shittim to the heavenly Gilgal. And how did, become, did He become all of that for us? By becoming Himself, the sacrifices of verse 6 and 7. You see, the people ask of God, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God answers them, I shall give my firstborn for your transgression. Jesus will give His body for the sin of your soul. And finally, in verse 8, we see that where we fail to fulfill God's demands, He does it for us. Didn't we sing all of these good things of our Redeemer earlier today? He did justice. He came and ate with tax collectors and sinners. He came and freed the oppressed and healed the sick. In His boundless love and mercy, He, the ransom, freely gave, as we sung. He loved sickness. He loved, sorry, he loved kindness. He made a covenant with the Father and the Spirit to redeem for himself a people. His heavenly love, his heavenly 
covenantal, steadfast love brought us from death to life with Him to be. Thirdly, His life was one of humbleness and humiliation. He took the form of a servant and did the Father's will to the end. On the cross, He sealed, sealed our pardon. He paid the debt and made us free. Take this into your heart this morning. We can be acquitted in the heavenly court because the judge himself became like the defendant and took upon himself our condemnation. Freed now to be like him, united through him through the power of his Holy Spirit, we now are free to fulfill those requirements. Because of what he did for us, we can do justice, we can love mercy, we can walk humbly because of Him who did it all first and now empower, empowers us to do the same. Always sure of His forgiveness when we fail. We can do what God requires of us because He is with us, always saving us, helping us, loving us. He is with us until the end. Let us pray. Our great compassionate God, you have loved us with unfailing, self-giving mercy, but we have not loved you. You constantly call us, but we do not listen. You ask us to love, but we walk away from neighbors in need, wrapped in our own concerns. We condone evil, prejudice, warfare, and greed. God of grace, as you come to us in mercy, we repent in spirit and truth, admit our sin, and gratefully receive your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. In his name, God's people pray, and together we all say, Amen.